Welcome back to This Tuesday's Across the Movie Isle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by award-winning Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am ready for a holiday break, y'all. I am just happy to be talking about movies with friends, as always. First stop in controversies and controversies. Uh, Netflix has released an enormous tranche of viewer data. Just tons of tons of information. Not not really that much information, actually, but lots of big numbers. Basically, they released the hours watched for more than 18,000 programs uh, between January and June of this year, which the company says accounts for about 99% of the viewing on the streamer. It's broken into 100,000-hour increments and ranges from 812,100,000 hours for The Night Agent uh, to 100,000 hours for Moonrise Kingdom. Lots of things in that 100,000 range. Lots, lots most things you just don't watch on Netflix is what it comes down to. That's the big takeaway from this. It's very top heavy. Lots of things don't get watched very much. Uh, Netflix should, of course, be applauded for putting together something like this. I'm often very hard on Netflix. I do want to, I think they deserve kudos here. It's very interesting to get this. We've been clamoring for this data for, for a while, or at least some data. And this is data. We have it. It's great. Uh, as Julia Alexander noted in her Puck newsletter this week, we have a handful of big takeaways. Uh, one is that Netflix behaves or or where it succeeds, it is behaving more or less kind of like a traditional broadcast network, right? The biggest hits are the sort of serialized dramas that would have killed on something like CBS or NBC. The Night Agent, right, was the the biggest hit of the first half of the year. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's FUBAR did a quarter billion hours. Buzzy shows like Wednesday were at the top of the charts. Kind of interesting, interesting stuff. Uh, while comedies are a moribund genre theatrically, comedies on streaming continue to do pretty well. The second biggest hit of the first half of the year was the comedy show Ginny and Georgia, which uh, actually, if you take the first two seasons and put them together, it hit nearly a billion hours, uh, which is, you know, even more than The Night Agent. Movies like You People and Murder Mystery 2 both made the top 40 on a list that was dominated with TV shows and their hour-chewing runtimes. That is, of course, something to consider here. When you're looking at total hours watched, it's not percentage of accounts that watched or, uh, you know, percentage of accounts that finished. Uh, it's just this is how many uh, hours were consumed, and TV shows are going to eat up a lot more, which gets me to... One of my points here, which is that Netflix should only be making TV shows. I, I like I don't understand the 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 putting hundreds of millions of dollars into movies and just letting them sit there. But we can we can talk about that. Um, the dearth of prestige titles in the upper echelons of viewing is kind of striking. Right. Uh, Best Picture nominees like Power of the Dog got four point eight million hours. Mank, 300,000 hours. Uh, Roma, 800,000 hours. Those did not have the same legs as titles like, say, Extraction, which did 86 million hours, driven in part by the fact that there was an Extraction 2, which drove attention to Extraction. Uh, movies like Red Notice, right, which did uh, 68 million. Um, though I will say I was pleasantly surprised to see that The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is five years old uh, this year, the last Coen Brothers movie, it clocked in at a relatively robust 10.1 million hours. That's Great. Good for the Coens. The big question is whether or not any of the other major streamers follow through with this kind of transparency. And I'll be honest, I don't see any chance of that happening. Uh, one reason that Netflix has done this is to demonstrate their power. This is a signal to talent that they have the reach that other streaming services can only dream of. If you want to get your program or your movie seen by the largest number of people possible, Netflix is the way to do it. 
No, you're not going to get a theatrical release, probably, but you will get seen by lots and lots of people for many, many hours, assuming you get some of that precious homepage real estate. Uh, neither Max, nor Disney+, Plus, nor Hulu, nor, Pre- nor Peacock, nor Apple TV+, Plus, nor Paramount+, Plus, nor any of the other services have this kind of reach. Peter, is Netflix's flex here likely to prompt similar transparency? Or am I right and that the the, uh, the other streamers are just going to be like, we see nothing, we know nothing, we don't, what, what Netflix data? I don't know what you're talking about. I think it's hard to know, actually. In some ways, they are going to be pressured to produce data. And in other ways, I think if all of us and all of you sort of the the conventional wisdom about how many people are actually watching things that aren't, for example, The Mandalorian uh, on Disney Plus or uh, Lord knows on Hulu and all the other streamers. I think they may just decide to to skip out here. And this this is, I think you're exactly right. This is a power play uh, and it is a power play very specifically targeted at, um, at saying to creators, you want to work with us. Uh, and it gives them, it gives them a little more uh, uh, sense of what is being watched and how much things are being watched. Uh, but mostly it says, you want to watch with us because we are the big player in town. And you know what? They also pay well. And so if you want to make a lot of money and have your stuff seen, go to Netflix. That is the message here. This was not an effort to prov- to be transparent in a way that's like, we would like to actually know what's going on. Um, and in fact, if you if you looked at some of the quotes that uh, Sarandos gave at the press conference or, or when this stuff was uh, announced, he talked very specifically about how there's not going to be country-by-country breakdowns. There's not going to be more granular data and that um, releasing more granular data and and stuff that might actually show you, you know, which shows are doing well where, for example, would be, uh, I I forget exactly the the phrase he used, but it's something like an enormous release of competitive intelligence. And in fact, also defended Netflix is not releasing this stuff for quite a while at as a way of preserving competitive information, right? Like uh, the stuff that their competitors would want to know. And part of what they seem to be saying here is we have pulled away from the streaming pack so much that we can afford to release this. It makes us look good because if they, because of the other guys, I think this is the other thing you can take from this is it's not just that the conventional wisdom about other streamers not having big audiences is correct. It's that Netflix has a good reason to believe that the conventional wisdom is correct, that nobody's watching stuff on the other streamers. Again, some shows, uh, a handful of shows like Yellowstone, The Mandalorian, that sort of thing aside here. Netflix is releasing this because they probably have pretty good inside data on the other streamers. And they probably like have a good sense that their numbers are, are just much, much better than what anybody else can put out. And so in some ways, this is a dare to the other streamers. And uh, I, I doubt we will end up seeing more waves of this from, from competitors. Maybe they will release something, some sort of a, a little bit more data about, say, their biggest hits. But, but I don't think that we are going to see anything this transparent from other streamers. Alyssa, the, the, again, the interesting thing here is, you know, Yes, this is a lot of it's a lot of information. Just looking at the spreadsheet, you know, scrolling through it, picking out random titles to see how they did. There's there's a lot of information here, but I, I do think it is it is interesting uh, and and not entirely useful in the sense that like I would like to know how many people are like actually watching shows to completion. I would like to know what the decay rate on something like the Night Agent or whatever else is. Like how many people get 
two episodes into a thing and stop or don't finish the first episode or or whatever. I would bet the decay rate on The Night Agent is pretty good, like on, on the right. well, single I mean, best show that it's promising, which you want to know, like in some ways. Sure, sure, sure. No, totally. Sort of I, I, what's a good rate and what's an average rate and what's a bad rate and which shows are sort of doing excessive, extremely well up front and then dropping way off by episode three or four. Yes. Like, again, I think that would be interesting data to have. Uh, Alyssa, what did you what did you make of all this? One thing I wondered is how the release of this data influences the relationship between Netflix and creators who are not super high on the list. Because, you know, we ha- as we had discussed um, during the writer's strike, one of the risks, it seemed to us, of demanding sort of traffic-based cuts was that a lot of people were not going to qualify for them. And to a certain extent... I wonder if this sends a somewhat more complicated message to creators, which is, you know, the stuff that you're making for us often doesn't have a lot of draw on its own. So whether or not your show is going to make it big sort of depends entirely on us, on our algorithm, on what we serve to people. Um, And I wonder if it's a little bit of it saying like, you know, most of y'all are not secretly Shonda Rhimes. Most of you are not secretly Ryan Murphy. Um... And, you know, this is a way of them making that argument publicly without having to say it, right? I mean, now it's not a situation where, you know, like the writers are going to get to see some of this data and then can still sort of make a public argument. It's like, oh, they still don't value our contributions. Here Netflix is saying, like, this is what your contributions are. Like, and so it's an act that's sort of interestingly aggressive towards other streamers. But it's also sort of interestingly aggressive towards creators who are not kind of topping that leaderboard. Though there was something interesting about the way when they released it, they noted that most of the shows in I think it was the top 60 percent of the board had at one point or another appeared on their top 10. Right. Uh, which is measured yeah. somewhat different. So so in some ways what they're saying is almost everything that is sort of like that is in our top two thirds here. And that if you go down 60% of the way through this list, that is shows that in the first six months of this year, we're not being viewed all that much relative to the top 10, top even, you know, top 25% of the uh, of the shows. Um, th- there was a way that they were trying to say or trying to signal, um, maybe not literally everything does pretty well, but most of the stuff we are making has its turn in the spotlight. Yeah. I mean, I would be most interested in the correlation between hours watched and how much stuff is served on the home screen, right? I mean, that's the metric, you know, that I'm really interested in because, you know, I think Netflix has an enormous interest in being able to, you know, sort of be the service responsible for making stuff happen, right? I mean, it wants creators to need them more than they need any individual creator, I mean, it's also good for them, for example, to be able to tell Shonda Rhimes, like, yeah, you can make Queen Charlotte hit. We'll totally invest in that. But, like, we can make other stuff hits, too, just by the power. Yeah, the home screen correlations would be really interesting, especially since he, I don't know if you guys have seen the numbers about how long people spend deciding what to watch on Netflix. And apparently it's gotten somewhat like the the time that people spend sort of basically channel surfing through the tiles Mm -hmm. to figure out what they want to watch has gotten longer over the years and is now something like seven to nine minutes on average. Wow. Which is, it's not like, it's not that long, right? But it does suggest uh, that in some cases it's sort of like just a lot of channel surfing, but also that there's a lot of, probably a lot of like 
sort of family or group uh, discussions going on. Oh, we're going to watch this or we're going to watch this. Oh, I don't. Right. And I do like I'm I'm sorry. I'm now just like I've now just drifted down the there's the homepage isn't just the top thing you see, right? It's yeah. it's this long list of categorized and organized things. You've got the top 10, you've got the picked for you, you've got your list, you've got all these genres that they'll serve up to you as sort of collections of things. Anyway, I'm now just like thinking about all the data that you could get from this and all of the interesting correlations and what that might tell us about about the different shows and how people interact with them. And they have all of this data. And in some, in some ways it drives me crazy uh, because I would actually just love to see it from like a kind of research and or like cultural understanding perspective. And and we probably won't ever get it. Uh, all right. So what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-controversy that Netflix uh, let everybody know just what was being watched and just for how long? Uh, Peter? It's a non-controversy. I think this is... A pretty straightforward move to um, to pull creators in their direction, and also to say to other streamers, we dare you to release your data because we think it's bad. Alyssa, uh, if this is controversial, then the Nielsen ratings are controversial. It's a controversy. Yeah, it's a controversy. This doesn't really map to the cons and nons uh, dichotomy, but I did. Uh, I think we should talk about it. All right, make sure to swing by on Friday for our bonus episode. We're going to be discussing the studio's reluctance to highlight that musicals. Movie musicals are, in fact, you know, musicals. They they don't want people to know. They're hiding it. Why are they hiding it? What devious plans are they up to? And now on to the main event. Poor Things. It's the new movie from Yorgos Lanthimos uh, and Emma Stone. Elevator pitch. It's young feminist Frankenstein from the director of The Favorite and The Lobster. Uh, as always, some spoilers to follow. So please come back to this part of the show if that sort of thing bothers you, if you have not had a chance to check out Poor Things yet. Willem Dafoe's Dr. Godwin Baxter created Bella Baxter, who's played by Stone, following a tragedy. Baxter is what we might describe as a mad scientist. Uh, there are, like, weird hybrid creatures wandering around his estate, you know, like pig dog things, chicken chicken monsters, etc. It's weird, man, weird stuff. Uh, and Baxter is similarly weird. Bella Baxter, she has the brain of a child, the one that is rapidly maturing, and the body of a full-grown woman with all the attendants, uh, you know, physical stimulation that entails. As she learns more of the world and grows more comfortable with her own sexuality, she also expands as a human, which causes the men in her life, her father Godwin, fiance Max McCandles, who is played by Rami Youssef, her lover Duncan Wetterbaum, who's played by Mark Ruffalo, and the mysterious military man Alfie Blessington, who's played by Christopher Abbott, causes them no end of consternation. Uh, look, this is not a movie that traffics in subtlety. Uh, after all, it is a movie in which she literally calls her father slash creator God. For short, you know, Godwin just calls her, calls her, calls him God all the time. Uh, questions his plans for hers. Uh, you know, he the death of God is a very important part of this film. Uh, it's two and a half hours of Bella repeatedly stating her desires and having to overcome the uh, opprobrium of the men in her life to achieve them. She rejects their judgment and in so doing becomes so more fully human, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum. Um, there are two reasons I can't dismiss this film entirely as aggressively self-satisfied claptrap, though it is absolutely self-satisfied claptrap. It's it's amusing. Um, the, the first reason is that there is a definite, it looks great. It's an aesthetic triumph, right? It's the sort of weird steampunk alternate past combining bright colors and fisheye lenses with striking expressionistic set designs and really interesting costuming to make something that simply looks like uh, nothing 
that I've ever really seen before, or at least different enough to, to stand out. And the second reason is that the performances are frequently genuinely hilarious, like laugh out loud funny. I probably snort laughed a couple dozen times during the 150 minutes. Um, it's not just the euphemisms, right? Like you might be able to guess what Bella's favorite activity, furious jumping, refers to, uh, having discussed a little bit what the plot is. Uh, though that sort of thing is clever. Um, it's, it's the straightforward way in which Stone delivers these lines, her combination of accidental euphemism and brash forthrightness that just, it, it makes everything much more amusing than it, strictly speaking, needed to be. Um, there's a deadpan sincerity to the readings that can't uh, help but make you laugh. Uh, in short, I'm mixed on poor things. It's either a fascinating misfire or a movie that just transcends the shackles of its intellectual underpinnings to be more amusing than annoying. Alyssa, what did you make of Feminist Frankenstone? So we're taping this less than two hours after I walked out of Poor Things, so I want to res reserve the opportunity to revise my judgment of it as I sit with it a little bit. But on first watch, I kind of think I loved it. <laughs> Have either of you read Demon Copperhead, Robert Kingsolver's sort of retelling of David Copperfield? No. It's wonderful. It's, I mean, she won the Pulitzer Prize for it, absolutely just, justifiably. And that is a straight retelling of Dickens. And Poor Things is a movie that reminds me of a Dickens novel in a lot of ways. Like, it's sort of big, it's overstuffed with characters who kind of come in and come out. It's very much a movie of social commentary, right? I mean, you mentioned that Bella's, you know, father slash creator, go, you know, is... Godwin goes by God. Uh, but you didn't mention that, you know, her her original name before the tragedy that led to her transformation was Victoria, right? So, I mean, this is a movie literally about moving out of the Victorian age of Bella's life. The damn thing is obvious and on the nose, but also just so sort of heartfelt and emotionally surprising that it kind of completely won me over, right? And it is a novel of ideas. It's, you know, she... Bella is literally thinking through what is the role of experience in being a human being? Like, is innocence sort of a critical driving force or is it a sham? Is sort of degradation, does that provide us with useful information or is it actually just degrading in a way that contains no lessons? I mean, she's literally studying philosophy, right? And you know, it's it's a fascinating movie to watch as a parent, right? Because it's a story about someone going from little girl to woman in like total warp speed. And some of the stuff that's incredibly funny early in the movie that's also disturbing because it's being played out in an adult woman's body is the kind of stuff that toddlers do, right? I mean, you put something in your mouth, you spit it out because it's disgusting. That's a totally logical response. And to a certain extent, it's like, you know, why should you be obeying the structures of polite society in, you know, continuing to ingest something that's disgusting just out of politeness. You know, the idea of, you know, smacking someone because you're angry at them or, you know, being incredibly furious that you're not allowed to go outside by yourself, right? I mean, these are all sort of toddlerish behaviors that are both disturbing and empathetic, you know, or and easier to empathize with when Stone plays them out, right? It's like, of course, it seems insane to keep, you know, someone like Bella in the house against her will. But also it's like my two-year-old probably should not be allowed to go out on his own because he uh, is no respecter of persons or his own physical safety. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, I feel like the movie's treatment of sexuality, I think, is an area that is 
obviously going to trip people up and is obviously meant to, right? But at the same time, there's something very interesting about just sort of treating sex as an oddity where you can talk about the oddities openly, you know, especially in a moment where I think there's been a lot of rethinking of more liberated sexual norms and what they mean for women. And just being able to, for the film to be able to state baldly, like, some men like sex better when they think you're not enjoying it, um, as the madam who Bella spent some time working for in Paris says to her at one point. Um, the idea of sex as, you know, transactional, as about power, um, the idea that it leads to emotional attachment, sometimes for people who don't expect it, in this case, you know, played out in, with a lot of humor by Mark Ruffalo. And God, it just looks gorgeous. I mean, the costume design, the physical design of Godwin's house that is this combination of sort of Victorian manse and, you know, Gaudiesque architecture in the ceilings, the, you know, the combination of like Victorian sleeves and sort of bodices as armor and, you know, like old school undies and everything. It's just, it's so gorgeous. I just, I don't know. I, it really, it felt sort of sumptuous and marvelous and it's possible that I'll come around to it and be like, eh, I hated this, but in the moment, I'm just, I feel kind of swept away by it, which I don't know if that's the reaction that either of you expected from me, but I would bet that I liked this way more than either of you. Well, it's interesting. You you, you said one thing in particular that I want to, I want to drill down on a little bit. And that is about the idea of degradation and sexuality yeah. uh, as, as, so there's a moment, there's a, there's a sequence in the film where Bella Baxter, uh, again, who has the mind of a child, decides to work as a prostitute in Paris. Well, uh, I wouldn't for, say she has the mind for, of a child at that point in the movie, right? I mean, it's, she's... I, it's, it is, is, she is maturing rapidly, but yeah. I would say that part of her not being a child anymore uh, is this experience in the brothel. Yeah, she's certainly not mentally operating in a space that is sort of easily categorizable on the age scale. Is sure. that fair? Sure. You know, I think she's... Uh, I mean, whatever, however we want to describe it, it, it like, regardless, uh, that's, I don't want to get hung up on that because yeah. that's not the point I want to make. Uh, the, but you said, uh, you know, the, the movie is about degradation and how we respond to it. But I, I think I think at least a very key part of the movie is rejecting the idea that working in a brothel is degrading at all. There's an explicit kind of philosophy of physical joy, you know, uh, sensation that the movie is very heavily invested in. The idea that however you make yourself happy is fine. And I've, I, like, that's the part of the film I think I have the biggest trouble with because it does, it does kind of, um, society works when those impulses are stymied to a certain extent. And uh, the the idea here that, you know, the only way to happiness is by kind of rejecting that stymieing is, uh, it's interesting, but all, uh, like also ultimately chi- as childish as Bella Baxter is. It is it is ultimately a a philosophy of a 10-year-old who well, wants, what, wants what he or she wants. Yeah, I mean, I think the movie is sort of an ex- like is playing with the extremes to which you can take enlightenment thinking, right? But part of what's interesting about the brothel sequence that you describe is that, you know, Bella has this experience that she doesn't like. She tries to propose a different way of doing business. The madam she's working for both bites her earlobes and then delivers this sort of lecture about, uh, you know, sort of degradation as part of the universal human experience. But 
what is interesting about how Bella responds is that she actually sets up this sort of rules-based scenario to make sure that she maintains some level of like consent and to turn these encounters into something that she finds more enjoyable, right? So within this framework where she doesn't have choice to a certain extent, you see this very sort of warm, funny scene where she sits down with one of her clients and is like, I propose, you know, a sort of structure to our encounter. I'll quiz you. You'll tell me a memory from your childhood. I'll tell you a joke. I'll decide if you smell bad, and then we'll fix that and get down to business. And it's sort of reestablishing an ethic of consent within the framework of this situation in which she has very little power. It's like a reestablishment of sort of contemporary sexual ethics to a certain extent. And, you know, my colleague Christine Emba wrote, um, has this book out this year, Rethinking Sex, that was very sort of provocative, in part because it argues that the sexual revolution has not really worked out for women. And, you know, I've told Christine this, and but part of what I find to be a hole in the book is, you know, how she she makes the point that a lot of young women are having sex that they don't like. But part of the way, you know, that you figure out what you do like in bed is to have sex. And it's, you know, there isn't some like platonic ideal that you can have kind of going into that. And, you know, Poor Things is an interesting, you know, it's it's almost like, I don't know if either of you read Tristram Shandy either, um, but you know, it's this sort of famous early novel about the sort of misadventures of the title character. But part of how you figure out what you like in the world, what's, you know, and that not just sexually, but otherwise, is to go out and experience it. And Bella doesn't end up choosing a life of that sort of radical freedom, right? You know, she, um, maybe she's a different kind of radical freedom. Um, she ends up living with her lesbian mistress, with her uh, lobotomized former husband, acting like a goat. In the, I mean, like it's it's a bizarre movie. I just I just literally described what happens in the closing minutes. So if you if you want to understand, you also forgot her the very weirdness her very nice accommodating husband too, right? And <laughs> right, and her and her husband who was there, and, and like the, the, movie the whole thing is, is that marriage is a civilizing influence <laughs> when done yes, right. Something something <laughs> like that. Uh, Peter, what did you make of Poor Things? It's an exceptionally well-made movie, just exquisite in so many ways. It's incredibly well-acted all around, and as much as I appreciated it, I just didn't love it. There is a line at the very end of uh, Manola Dargis's review in the New York Times, which is just really sharply written and, and really quite complimentary of the film in a lot of ways, or a lot of um, elements of it. Uh, but there's a line at the end that just captured my feelings almost perfectly. It isn't long into poor things that you start to feel as if you were being bullied into admiring a movie that's so deeply self-satisfied, there really isn't room for the two of you. And that's how I felt uh, watching this. I wanted to like it, uh, but instead I admired it. And it won me over in that respect. I just didn't really enjoy it. And part of it is that I always always dislike the trope of the innocent who wanders through the world revealing obvious truths about society. I didn't like the world according to Garp or Being There or Forrest Gump or Big Fish. Didn't even like the case, the curious case of Benjamin Button. It, despite my deep, deep love for David Fincher, it is the only David Fincher movie that I don't love, although it is beautiful. Um, and I appreciate a certain amount of smugness and self-satisfaction in a movie, but it can't be the entire enterprise. And it really felt like the entire enterprise here. The movie just has, 
Can Sorry, I go ahead. A quick yeah. question, Peter. You've described this movie as sort of self-satisfied or smug to me a couple times here over text. And I was wondering if you could pinpoint what you mean by that a little yes. bit more. Because having watched the movie, I I felt like I had trouble locating that criticism in the text that I was observing. So here's here's my issue with the movie. This movie has absolutely no interest in ever undercutting itself, in adding friction or complication to its uh, metaphorical ideas. It just schematically arranges the its world to make absolutely everything play out in the most metaphorically convenient way. There's no moment where you where you go, wait, this movie is is having an argument with itself. It is metaphorically monologuing its its world view to you. And there is there is a moment in this movie actually with the lesbian lover with the uh that like at the point that she he, she not only takes a lesbian lover but that lesbian lover is just casually inviting her to socialist club and like that's what we're doing here. Okay, I get it. This is where like this is how you see the world. The the closest thing this movie comes to having a, a complex idea is in the character of of God of Godwin the father who is uh at like all at once kind of gentle and nice and also kind of a monster and like he in some ways is the most interesting character to me but i just i just couldn't i couldn't come along with its with the way that it absolutely refused to complicate its worldview and this is to go back to david fincher i think totally the opposite of what the thing that i really loved about the killer earlier this year was that that was a movie that could, if you wanted to, you could experience it kind of very simply as a sort of cool killer movie, but it was also a movie that was just constantly undercutting and making fun of its protagonist and just like reducing, like it was tweaking the protagonist's worldview. It was saying, that's ridiculous. That's kind of, that's silly. That's self-serving. It was rather than saying, ah, this here is a person who is heroic and great in the world and like actually has sees it for what it is. And I just, again, I, I, I admired every frame of this movie. I think Emma Stone, in particular, uh, does a does a just a marvelous job uh, making this stuff. Making I think words on a page that kind of shouldn't work come alive, um, as do the other actors here. But I just I don't love a movie that has, uh, let me see if the two elements here. One is that everything is a metaphor and two is that the, the metaphor has been perfectly arranged to never have any complication. And so in some ways I thought also about uh, another movie we watched earlier this year, which was uh, Tetris, which was the movie that Sonny and I, when we watched that movie, I think Sonny and I both really liked it. I think you also did, Alyssa, maybe not quite as much. But I thought it was a I, trifle, you know. Yeah, and I, and I actually felt weird about that movie because it was pandering to my personal ideology so perfectly and so strongly that I was like, you know, I, I do in fact like this, but I feel weird about the fact that there is almost no complication of it that it's there's no pushback and so even when it's coming like I, I and I don't know it's not that I find this movie's ideology it's not even that I really disagree with it I think I I mean I'm certainly 70 or 80 percent of the way there um and I'm probably more uh, more than sunny I'm just like yes you should find pleasure in the world and as long as you're not hurting other people like that's the whole thing like like the you Eat the cake and 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 have the rambunctious bouncing, or I'm sorry, whatever the phrase was. Furious, furious jumping. Like, jumping. Yes, furious jumping, rambunctious bouncing. I'm gonna uh, use that to some. <laughs> That's another else. good. Uh, <laughs> all right, so let me. I, like I, 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 wanna... I just couldn't. I I couldn't come along with its with its self absorption. 
I just want to emphasize one point Peter was making in terms of how the the metaphor works here. So right, the one moment of complication comes. Uh, there's there's a moment when they uh, she is on a cruise with her lover, uh, played by Mark Ruffalo, and there there is a poor slum she sees, and it breaks her heart, and she decides to give the poor people all of her money, and she does it in a way that leads to the money being stolen by employees on the ship, right? And this is this is this is a moment where a view of the world that is nominally, I think, in line with kind of how everything else here works is critiqued, right? This idea of giving money to help the poor doesn't work. It gets stolen and siphoned away in, in various ways and whatever. But the problem is the movie then uses it as an excuse to get to, all right, now here's how being a prostitute is good, actually. It's like the complication is just a way to get to another way of confirming the film's bias. Does that make sense? I think that's right, but it's even bigger than that. It's about uh, taking down Mark Ruffalo's character to nothing. And it's about making him be uh, appear to be the grandiose um, lover of uh, a sort of shallow lover of money that the movie wants us to see him be because the next set of scenes is he gets kicked out of his fancy suite on the boat and then they're in Paris and he's whining that they don't have any money and he has no idea how to live. And it's, so it's not just that it's setting up the prostitution stuff. And I like, I'm a libertarian. I like sex work should be legal everywhere. I'm a, a very strong like proponent of, of, of legalizing all of this stuff. Um, but it's, it's not just about that. It's also about making fun of the people who specifically of, of the men who view the world as like their playground because they're rich. And Ruffalo is the embodiment of that. Peter, I really appreciate you clarifying that because I think it may get at the difference between the way the two of us read the film, which is that I read this as essentially a 19th century sort of social novel, right? Like basically like the Uncle Tom's cabin, but of um, and I think what I really enjoyed, and apologies to Sonny if that, you know, gets us slapped. Furious jumping. <laughs> yes. Um, and so part of what I enjoyed about this movie was seeing a sort of highly moralistic format used to such perverse ends. Right? I mean, you know, it's because it, yeah. it's not just like yeah, the sexual, it's not just sort of the sexual perversity of the movie, but like, oh, actually taking this horrible general who bullies his servants and like turning him mentally into a goat, that's awesome. Right? I mean, <laughs> the movie has this like, <laughs> it is a deeply perverse worldview in some ways. And to a certain extent, you can look at it backwards and say, okay, this depiction of sexuality and lobotomizing bad generals, like maybe all of it's bad, right? And so it's a, I mean, I think it's a very, I found it to be just a very funny commentary on the sort of social novel form. And I think, look, you know, there, there's this great line that I'm gonna have to paraphrase from A.S. Byatt's novel, Possession, which is about two scholars of Victorian poetry who end up on this sort of intellectual quest together. And there's this line eventually about how like, they're kind of children of their age, right? And so they know about all of these sort of theories and, you know, concepts and philosophical arguments, but they don't necessarily know how to be in the world. And this movie, you know, just felt very much like a use of this form to, you know, very funny, perverse ends that like Harriet Beecher Stowe or Charles Dickens could never have imagined this movie, right? And like, I think that's kind I of what I think that is fair to it. say. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's just part of what I found really delightful about it is like, 
the frock coats and the corsets and the petticoats and the architecture and the carriages and just the juxtaposition between sort of form and subject material on sort of every level of this movie. Um, Did you guys enjoy uh, Lanthimos' previous movies? Because I actually, I quite liked The Lobster and Sacred Deer and uh, the, the Favorite. And I was surprised by how distancing I found this film. And I, it's, it's distancing on purpose, right? And it, it's, it, it wants to make you laugh, but it also wants to separate you from the action in some ways. Boy, I, I totally disagree with this, actually, uh, because I hate The Lobster and The Killing of a Sacred Deer. I really dislike those movies. And and the reason I really dislike them is because I hate the way Lanthimos directs his actors in those films, particularly Colin Farrell and then uh, Nicole Kidman in Killing of a Sacred Deer. He, he gives them this sort of robotic affect, this sort of drained of emotion. And it it drives me batty. I don't like it. I dislike it. I find it very distancing. I, I don't care for it in any in any way. And I like the favorite a little more because I think Olivia Coleman and Emma Stone were able to push back on that a little bit to give it more life. I think the performances here are actually great. I love the performances yeah, I here. I find them I find them like amusingly lively and full like lifeful. And the worst performance comes from um Jared Carmichael. I found his performance actually the worst in the film because he is doing the sort of thing that uh, was in The Lobster and and A Killing of a Sacred Deer. Again, this kind of like drained, monotone thing that I, I didn't care for, whereas Ruffalo is a little bit over the top. He's channeling a lot of Nick Cage in this movie, I think. And Emma Stone is like kind of delightfully jaunty and, and janky uh, all over the place. Um, and Willem Dafoe is Willem Dafoe. He's He's fantastic. I found this movie less distancing than those films. I, f- I thought it was really trying to pull people into its world, which is maybe another reason why I frankly resent the smugness of it, uh, to, to use Peter's, I think, fairly apt phrases, because it's like the movie is saying, how could you possibly disagree with this very simple state of affairs that we are positing over and over and over again? And it's like, well, I mean, I, I can think of a few reasons, but... I don't know. Uh, Alyssa, did you did you like his previous I, films? I haven't seen any of them. And now I really I need to go back and watch The Favorite like as soon as is humanly possible because I cannot imagine that I will not love it. But um, You will enjoy The Favorite. Yeah, yeah. I think you'll like The Favorite. I mean, this whole vibe plus Rachel Weiss, like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, that just sounds it's like a little funny. less steampunky. Yeah, well, obviously, but... Uh, God, Emma Stone is so wonderful in this. And this is a role that just, I have a really hard time imagining how anyone else would pull it off now that I've seen it. It just seems so sui generis, right? It's like the behaviors, especially in the early going, are that of the toddler. The physicality is something else entirely. It just, uh, and the, the fact, the way that she just, Bella's growth under these totally unnatural circumstances feel so naturalistic. It's just, it's an astonishing performance. Yeah, I think she's been uh, up and coming for a long time and has been doing great work for a while, but this marks a real turn. All right, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on poor things? Peter. I admired this movie an awful lot. I'm not sure I enjoyed it. You decide whether that's a thumbs up or a thumbs down. No, wrong. You have to, thumbs up or thumbs down. This is, do not, do not... Try to worm your way out of this to avoid taking a stand, Suderman. I have. I can't even answer this question, man. The people demand it. 
I'm going to give this a, a thumbs up, I guess, but only barely. With All right. Significant provisos. Uh, thumbs up. I, it's it's interesting to me that I like this more than either of you. I give it a thumbs down. I, I'll go with the courage of my convictions, unlike Peter Suderman, who weaseled his way into a thumbs up to avoid b- g- disrupting the hegemony of the critical class. I, however, have the I am brave enough to say thumbs down to poor things, even though I kind of enjoyed it, frankly. I like I, I didn't hate this movie at all. <laughs> I think like, it's it's I will say I again I laughed more. Uh, I laughed more while watching this movie than I have just about anything else this year. It's um, so which funny. Is, which is which is a sign of success. Uh, but you know, it's still it didn't it doesn't entirely work for me. All right, that is it for this Tuesday's episode. Many thanks to our audio engineer Jonathan Siri, without whom this program would sound much worse. Hopefully, I can get him to get a bleep in there for the potty mouths on this show. Terrible. It's furious jumping. Uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode. Tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If you don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys on Friday. Friday.